Good morning. We're so glad you could be here this morning at Three Lakes Evangelical Free Church. You guys would make your way into the... We're going to begin in worship this morning, so stand with us, please. Good morning. 
It's a joy to gather with you here this morning. If you are visiting or new here, my name is Tim. I'm the senior pastor here at Three Lake Evangelical Free Church, and we are we're glad that you're here with us this morning to worship our, our God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. We're, it's a joy to gather together. Um, if you are new or visiting, um, there's a, a Connect card in the seat in front of you. If there's anything you'd like to communicate with the church or anything you'd like to let us know about yourselves or any questions you may have, you can fill that out, write on those, and drop those in the boxes on the back wall on your way out. Uh, those boxes are also where offerings can go if you want to give to what we're doing here as a church this morning. A couple announcements to bring to your attention. Uh, one is that coming up on Saturday, February 4th, there will be the, the No Regrets Men's Conference. It's being hosted um, by Faith Church in Woodruff. And so, men, if you're interested in that, there is registration information in your bulletin for that. On Sunday, February 12th, we're going to start a new, a new study during the Sunday school hour after church. And so that is going through the book Essential Christianity. The subtitle is The Heart of the Gospel in Ten Words. So it's just a very core, like, what is the gospel? What do we believe about Jesus? And so whether you're new to the faith or whether you just want a deeper, richer understanding of what the gospel is, we'd invite you to be part of that. If you are interested in that, you can just write I'm interested in essential Christianity on the Connect card and drop it in the box. Or you can email the church office or email me and we'll get you set up with that. Um, also, today, after, after the Sunday School Hour, so at 11.45, there will be a, a brief meeting going over how to use um, AEDs, AED device training. Um, so that'll be, that'll be led in the library at 11.45 if you're interested in learning more about how to use those you are welcome to attend that. And then finally, on September 5th, there will be a, a meeting for anyone interested in being a facilitator or a leader or a host for our Practicing the Way um, series. And so a couple weeks ago, kind of unveiled, but we'll be starting the week following Easter. It will be a series of, of small groups going through different practices that are meant to form our life to be more like the life that Jesus lived. Right? So practicing the way. And so the first one is on the Sabbath and how we Sabbath well. So it, each practice is a four-week session. And so if you're interested in hosting one of those four-week sessions kind of as, as a small group in your home, uh, we'd invite you to attend a, a leader interest meeting on February 5th. It'll be during the Sunday school hour, so 1045 to 1130 just invite you to be a part of that. I'm excited for what God is going to do through um, that, that series. And so um, even if you just want to learn more about what practicing the way is, we'll also be able to kind of preview it that way as well. So I invite you to be a part of that. So as we kind of prepare and continue in worship this morning, would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for this time to gather. Thank you for the work you've done in each of our lives, all through our lives, to bring us to this place here now where we are gathered together as your people in this place. 
pray this morning that you would be at work in each one of our hearts and each one of our minds to draw us to yourself, to cause us to be amazed and in awe of what a great God you are. You'd be at work in each one of our hearts and minds to conform us more into the image of Jesus. You'd be at work as we fellowship together and enjoy one another's company to that we would point one another to Jesus, that we would cause one another to love Jesus more as we interact with one another. We pray that you would be glorified in all that happens here this morning, all that takes place here this morning. Father, we pray for people in our church who are struggling, who are hurting, who are going through hard times. Pray that you would be at work to bring them comfort and peace and a deep and abiding sense of your presence with them in the midst of trial. Father, would we all feel that presence this morning, that we would all feel you here with us, that as we sing, as we fellowship, as we hear your word, that we would not be going through the motions, but that we would sing to bring you glory, that we would hear your word to be more in line with the life you've called us to live, that we would be keenly aware that we are here to worship you and all that we do. You be glorified this morning. Amen. All right, we're going to ask you to stand again this morning. You know, as as we're up here, um, we, we use in-ear monitors. I don't know how many of you can tell that we have them in, but to listen to ourselves and whatever. And I always keep one side out because I can hear you guys singing. And I can really hear this little group of girls over here singing usually. Now, they are unabashedly singing. And I'm just going to challenge you this morning as we, as we raise a hallelujah this morning, if you guys can beat this corner over here. Let's see if we can do it because this, this is hard. I raise a hallelujah in the presence of mine enemies. I raise a Fight for 
goodness, out of your generosity, you have given us all that we have. Father, we pray that our lives would be dedicated to using what you've given us for your kingdom and for your glory. Many of you may know that the first battle of the Revolutionary War was fought in Concord, Massachusetts in in 1775. And you may also know that that battle has gone down in history with the nickname, The Shot Heard Round the World. Because that, that first battle started a war in which like the political landscape, not just of the United States and not just of England, but of the whole world was drastically changed. That was the shot heard around the world. What you may not know is that that phrase, the shot heard around the world, was not coined until 1836, so nearly 60 years after the original battle. It was first coined by Ralph Waldo Emerson in a poem called The Concord Hymn. The first stanza of that poem goes like this. By the rude bridge that arched the flood, their flag to April's breeze unfurled, here once the embattled farmer stood and fired the shot heard round the world. And that poem was, it was famous in its own day, but that poem, and in particular the first stanza, which is that stanza there, became even more famous in 1874 when it was included on the base of a statue by the by the sculptor David Chester French, and the statue was called the Minuteman. So this is that statue. This is the Minuteman statue. You can kind of see, you can't read it, but you can see on the base there's words down there, and those words are the stanza of Emerson's poem. And that statue now stands in Minuteman National Historic Park in Concord, Massachusetts. And so that statue called the Minuteman, it stands in Minuteman National Park, and that, that park is dedicated to the event that took place in Concord that started the Revolutionary War. And so these, these Minutemen, right, the, that that statue commemorates, that the name of the park commemorates, they became quite famous during and in, in the years after the Revolutionary War. Like Minutemen have gone, gone down in history. Right? The National Guard, which is in some ways the successor to the Minutemen, features this statue on their seal. And the University of Massachusetts has the Minuteman as their mascot. And the United States Air Force had the missile that was especially prevalent during the Cold War called the Minuteman Missile. It was called that because it was always kept on high alert during the Cold War as a deterrent toward nuclear action. And all this to say, right, that, that the Minutemen of the Revolutionary War have quite the legacy. And it's a legacy that they earned by being, in many ways, kind of the first special forces in U.S. military history. Minutemen were selected from the regular standing militia of various states during this time. And whereas regular militias were required to train and drill once a month, 
the Minutemen were, were called to drill three times each week. And they were called Minutemen because they were expected to be ready at a minute's notice. In fact, the, the group of Minutemen that that statue we saw commemorates, that first group of Minutemen was originally formed because the regular Massachusetts militia failed to respond quickly enough to an alarm that was triggered in 1774. And it made the leader of Massachusetts aware that they needed men who were always ready to fight at any given time. That was the role of the Minutemen, right? to, to be ready at a minute's notice, to always be on guard, to be prepared to fight for their country. To be, as the National Guard motto puts it, always ready and always there. And as Christians, we have a similar calling on our lives. Over and over and over again throughout the Bible, and especially the Gospels, we are called to be ready and to be prepared. One of those places we're called to be ready and prepared is in today's passage in Luke chapter 21. We'll be looking at verses 29 through 38. And in this passage, Jesus says to always be on watch. In Matthew's version of the same story, Jesus says, you must always be ready. And the thing we are to watch for and to be prepared for, to be ready for, is, according to Jesus, the return, his return. The return of Jesus, we should always be ready for. We should always be prepared for Jesus to come back. This sermon is, in many ways, kind of a, a part two of last week's sermon. Last week, we, we kind of focused in on the fact that Jesus would indeed one day return. And we talked about how the fact that Jesus would one day return should give us confidence as we live this life. We can be confident, we can be hopeful, even in the midst of trials and tribulation, because Jesus promised that one day he would return. When he returns, he will set all things right. So that was kind of last week's focus, that we can be confident as we wait for his return. But this week, we want to zoom in a little bit. And focus on exactly how Jesus called us to live while we wait for him to return. Just like last week's passage, this is another passage where it's really easy to kind of get lost in the details. To, to give yourself over to speculating on when the end times will come or what it will be like exactly how these things will play out. What I hope we see this morning that everything that the Bible says is required for Jesus to return, has already taken place so Jesus could return at any moment. So we are to live every moment in a way where we would be pleased to be found by Jesus if he returned right now. We are called to live ready. We should live in a way that we are ready for the return of, of Jesus. And let's see that we look at our passage starting in verse... 29 this morning. So in verse 29 of Luke chapter 21, Jesus told the parable, told the disciples the parable. He said, Look at the fig tree and all the trees. When they sprout leaves, you can see for yourself and know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Like, we're, like, right now entering that part of, of winter here in the Northwoods where it becomes hard to remember 
what it's like to see leaves on trees. It's hard to remember what it feels like to feel the warmth of the sun on your face. It's getting a little bit hard to hold on to hope that, that one day summer will indeed return. Right? But one day in eight or nine months or whatever it is, like, summer will come back. You will walk outside and you will see leaves beginning to form on trees and they'll be there for like three days. But they'll be there. Like, they'll, you'll see leaves on trees. And when that happens, you'll know that summer is truly coming. And while winters in Israel aren't nearly as long or bitterly cold or snow-filled as they are here, right, the disciples are still familiar with this phenomenon. And Jesus tells them how they, they can tell, right, when summer is drying there, they can see the leaves blossoming. They can read the signs of the weather. They can read the signs of the seasons. Likewise, Jesus says, that when they see these things happening, you should be able to read the signs and know that the kingdom of God is near. When you see these things happening, you know that the kingdom of God is near. So if that's true, then it's really important that we know what, quote, these things are. When these things start happening, like what are the these things? Like that's an important piece of understanding this passage properly. If you remember back last week, you'll remember that Jesus gave a number of signs of, of things that would happen in the future. He said last week right, that one of the challenges of, of reading and interpreting that passage is in knowing which of the signs Jesus gave would Proceed the destruction of the temple in the year 70 A.D. And which signs would be signs that preceded his ultimate second coming at the end of history. Just as a, as a reminder, right, some of the signs that Jesus says will take place are things like nation rising against nation, and earthquakes happening, and famine, and the persecution of Christians. And finally, he says, signs in the sun, and the moon, and the stars. And there's a lot of debate among well-meaning, thoughtful Christians about whether all those signs have already taken place or whether certain things still need to happen before Jesus can come back. I'm not going to go deep into that this morning. But I'll just say that, that my conviction, my belief, which in this area you're welcome to disagree with me, but my conviction is that everything that needs to have happened for Jesus to return either has already happened or at the very least possibly has already happened. The exception to that is maybe the, the signs and the sun and the moon and the star that Luke talks about. Like, those things may not have happened yet, but like, those things will happen just moments before Jesus returns. Other than that, like, I, I believe that all the signs that Luke talks about have already taken place. And they took place before or during the destruction of the temple and the taking of Jerusalem. All that means, right, that Jesus could return at any given time. We can't say, right, well, Jesus can't come back yet because this or that had not happened. There are no big world events that need to take place before Jesus returns. There are two kind of primary reasons that I feel that way. The first is that like, I don't know how to make sense of 
Jesus' commands to be ready, or Jesus' statement that the end will come at an hour you do not expect, unless it's possible that Jesus could come back any minute. Like, why be ready if I know there are certain things that need to take place before he can come back? The second reason is that Jesus says in, in the next verse, in verse 32, he says, Truly I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. And this is a verse that can cause all kinds of hand-wringing for, for some people. Because they assume that Jesus is talking about his second coming when he says these things. He said they'll have happened before this generation has passed away. And there are some theologians, some Bible scholars who, who try to do all kinds of grammatical gymnastics to explain how, how this could be true if Jesus was talking about his return. How could it be that Jesus was talking about his return and he said this generation will not pass away? So there are some people who would argue that the word generation can be understood more broadly than we typically think of it. There are those who argue that the generation that Jesus is talking about when he says this generation is the generation that will be alive at his return. But I don't find any of those arguments very compelling. What did Jesus mean then when he says that this generation will not pass away until all these things have happened? And if these things refer primarily to his second coming then you either need to do those grammatical gymnastics or you need to admit that Jesus is wrong. But I take it as the solution is far more straightforward. Namely that when Jesus says this generation will not pass away until these things have happened, but these things he's referring to is the destruction of Jerusalem, the temple in 70 AD. As we said, like that happened in 70 AD, right? And Jesus is speaking in the in the early 30s A.D. So the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem will take place 37 or so years after Jesus is saying these words. In which case, many people he was speaking to would still be alive when those events took place. So if we put that kind of all together, here's where I land on this. Jesus says that these things will happen before the generation he is speaking to has passed away. Meaning that these things must have already happened because that generation has passed away. I believe that these things happened with the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Right? So when Jesus says in verse 31, when you see these things happening, you know that the kingdom of God is near. Well, since these things have happened, and the conclusion for us is that as we live right now, the kingdom of God is indeed near. And the rest of this passage then is about how we ought to live in light of the fact that the kingdom of God is indeed near. The passage is about how we ought to live in light of the fact that Jesus could return any time. In light of the fact that the kingdom of God is if present in each of us right now, this is how we ought to live. So with that in mind, let's look at the rest of this passage. Verse 33, Jesus says, 
heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. He's just saying, like, indeed, there is coming a day, right, when heaven and earth will pass away. This current heaven and earth will, will be no more. It'll pass away. It'll be replaced by a new heavens and a new earth. But the word of Jesus will not pass away. And the new heavens and the new earth, God will still be God. Jesus' will, Jesus's word will still be true. So in verse 34, then he lays out how we ought to live while we wait for that day when heaven and earth pass away and there's a new heaven and a new earth. Verse 34, he says, Be careful, for your heart will be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and the anxieties of life. And that day will close on you suddenly like a trap, for it will come on all those who live on the face of the whole earth. Be always on the watch and pray that you may be able to escape all that is about to happen and that you may be able to stand before the Son of Man. Each day Jesus was teaching at the temple and each evening he went out and spent the night on the hill called the Mount of Olives and all the people came early in the morning to hear him at the temple. So the verse that I really want to kind of hone in on this morning is verse... 34. Jesus says, Be careful. Your heart will be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and the anxieties of life. That day will close on you suddenly like a trap. This is how we ought to live in light of the fact that Jesus will one day return. Jesus saying we need to, we need to guard our hearts and things that stand in the way of our living for God's glory. We need to be careful so that our hearts are not weighed down with things that, that stand in the way of our giving, living our life the way God has called us to live. We can probably think of the things that we need to guard our hearts against in kind of two, two distinct categories. The first of those is excessive carelessness. Jesus refers to it as arousing and drunkenness. But the idea of, in those words that we need to be careful not to give in to the temptation to live entirely free, doing whatever we want to do, doing whatever feels good for us, doing whatever brings us joy. We need to be careful not to live a life that's not worried about what anyone, not worried about anyone else, or careful that we don't live a life that's not worried about what God has called us to do. We need to be careful not to live with excessive carelessness. In Titus chapter 2, Paul expresses this idea this way. He says, For the grace of God hath appeared that offers salvation to all people. That's the grace that's found in what Jesus has done for us. It's appeared, it offers salvation to all people. And then Paul says in verse 12, It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. So the grace right, that comes to us through Jesus teaches us, Paul says, to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. It causes us, Paul says, the grace of God causes us to not give in to excessive carelessness. Paul goes on to say, while we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, 
who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. I share that verse from Paul because it, it made clear what, what is assumed by Jesus in Luke chapter 21. And like, namely that is like the, the foundational reason that we can live the life we are called to live is because of the grace that is found in Jesus. We don't start there. We've missed the point. It is because Jesus came and he offered us God's grace. He offered us salvation from sin that we can live the life that we are supposed to live. It is God's grace, Paul says, that teaches us to say no to ungodliness, that teaches us to say no to worldly passions, that teaches us not to live with excessive carelessness. It is only when we trust in Jesus, when the Holy Spirit comes in and, and changes our heart and makes us a new creation, that it could ever possibly make sense to not just live for ourselves. If not for Jesus, then any effort to not live solely for yourself will ultimately fall short. Because apart from the grace that is found in Jesus, apart from believing that we are created by God to live for His glory, there just is no good reason to not live selfish lives. If you're, if you're an accident of the universe, if you're an accident of biology, like why would you not just live for yourself? It's only when you understand that we are made by God and saved by God for His glory that we have any reason to not live selfishly. You're here. You've been, you've been struggling and fighting to not live a life of drunkenness and carousing and excessive carelessness. You're here. You've just been living for yourself and you want to stop and you've been fighting to stop but you've never trusted Jesus and you find yourself failing over and over again. You've never received the grace of God offered to you through Jesus' life and death and resurrection. You will not succeed in living a self-controlled life in your own power. It is the grace of God shown to us in Jesus that teaches us to say no to ungodliness and teaches us to live self-controlled, upright lives. So we, before we, we look more at what the Bible says about not living excessively careless lives, we need to start there. If you've never trusted Jesus and received the grace of God, like that's the first step. First thing you need to do is trust right, that Jesus died on the cross in order to make it possible for your sins to be forgiven. You need to understand first that, that sin separates you from God and the only way that those sins can be forgiven and for you to be made right with God but through the death of Jesus on the cross and through your faith and trust in Him. And no amount of self-effort will ever get you into a right relationship with God. No amount of self-discipline will ever allow you to live a godly enough life that can make you right with God in your own power. You need to receive the grace of God through 
faith in Jesus. And then allow that grace to be the thing that teaches you to live self-controlled, upright, godly life. If you're here, you've never done that, you've never trusted Jesus, you never received that grace, I just urge you to pray. Right, that, that God, I'm a sinner. God, I know I, I can't be good enough on my own to earn your favor. God, I, I know I need the forgiveness offered by Jesus. I know that Jesus makes forgiveness possible. I want to receive that forgiveness. I want to receive your grace and let it teach me to say no to ungodliness. I want to live a life that brings you honor and glory, God. Like, that's the first step, to pray something along those lines. But for those of us who have done that, who have trusted in Jesus, then I just urge you to consider, are there areas of your life where you're living with excessive carelessness? Are there areas of your life where if Jesus came back right now, you would be ashamed, you would be embarrassed because you feel like you're not ready, that you're living carelessly in certain areas? I think there's like a couple areas where we can be prone to live with excessive carelessness. Areas that we need to, to really be extra on guard with our heart to prevent them from giving in to excessive carelessness. One of those areas is our time. Are you using the time that God has given you for His glory and for His good purposes? Or are you using the time that God has given you carelessly? Use the cause of carousing. Are you using your time in ways that are careless? Are you using your time for your own purposes, for your own desires? Are you using the time that God has given you to do whatever makes you happy? Or are you using the time that God has given you for His purposes? In Ephesians 5, Paul puts it this way. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Are you making the best use of your time? Are you understanding what God's will is, and then, using your time to achieve those things? Are you using your time to serve others and to help the needy and to grow deeper in your love and your knowledge and your relationship with God? Are you using your time to fellowship with fellow believers and to advance the kingdom by building friendships and sharing the gospel with non-believers? Are you using your time to, to love and encourage and pray for and build up those around you? Or are you carelessly spending your time on whatever makes you happy? Are you using your time well? Another area where we need to guard our heart against excessive carelessness is with our money. Our money to be used to bring God glory and to advance God's kingdom and to achieve God's purposes. Not solely spent on whatever brings me the most joy. First Timothy we read, Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant nor to put their hope in wealth, 
which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Are you being generous, willing to share your wealth? Or are you putting your hope in your wealth and using your wealth to try to bring you the joy that only God can ultimately bring? Are you being careless with your money? Are you using it for God purposes? Another area to be on guard against excessive carelessness is with our health, right? our, with our life, with our, with our body. God has placed us here on this earth at this time. He has given us this life. He has given us however many breaths we have, however many beats of the heart we get. He's given them to us to be used for His purposes. We need to guard ourselves. We need to guard our heart against being excessively careless with the precious life that God has given us. I think that means caring for our body through good diet and exercise. It means not excessively consuming substances that we know are harmful to our bodies. I think it means using the strength and the mobility and the dexterity and the skills that God has given us in our bodies to do things that bring Him glory. Guard our heart against excessive carelessness in the way we use our body. I say all that. Trust me that when I say it, I'm I'm preaching to myself as much as to any of you. I get stressed when I think it hard when I'm like when I'm overly tired, prone to using my time poorly. One of my defense mechanisms against Press is to kind of block them out and waste time watching YouTube or watching TV or playing a game on my phone or reading a book. Like, I just don't use my time well sometimes. Likewise, when I get stressed, like, I tend to eat poorly and not care for the body that God has given me. I don't at times be prone to, to spending money on things that I don't need. Sometimes, kind of all three go together. Like, I go waste money on junk food I don't need, and then I sit in front of the TV and waste my time eating the junk food that harms my body. Do all three. So please hear me when I say, like, I say these things. Like, I don't say them with any judgment or condemnation. I am as much in the fight against these things as any of you. But what mattered is, how we respond when we find ourselves giving into excessive carelessness. Our response needs to be that we, that we run to God. We ask Him to help change us. We trust that He has forgiven us through the grace that is found in Jesus. Right? We just saying, His mercy is more. His mercy is, is more than enough to cover all our failures in this area. Our sins are many. Like I, I sins are many in the careless use of my time and my health and my 
money, and yet His mercy is more? Do we run to God when we find ourselves failing? I come to help us grow to become more like Christ. That's ultimately how we deal with our propensity toward excessive carelessness. Another thing that Jesus says in the passage that we need to guard our hearts against is the anxieties of life. In verse 34, he says, Be careful or your heart will be weighed down with carousing, drunkenness, and the anxieties of life. So not only do we need to be on guard against excessive carelessness, we should also be on guard against excessive anxiety. This is a theme throughout Luke's Gospel. In the parable of the soils in Luke chapter 8, one of the seeds that doesn't bear fruit was the seed that fell among thorns. And Jesus said that the seed that fell among thorns are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by life's worries. In Luke 12, Jesus says, Don't worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, what you will wear. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothes. Luke, throughout his gospel, is all about urging us not to give in to excessive anxiety. A couple questions to consider in, in closing. I mean, does the anxiety about money prevent you from using your money to bless others as much as you could? Or does, does the anxiety about your reputation prevents you from sharing the gospel with friends and neighbors as much as you should? That the anxiety about the state of the world or the state of our country cause you to trust in a political party more than in God? That the anxiety over the well-being of your children cause you to not trust God as much as you should? Again, if your answer to any of those is yes, then my goal is not to cause you to feel judged. We all have those moments of worry over things that we should be giving to God. Again, what matters is how we respond to them. Paul shows us how to respond in Philippians 4 when he writes, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. The peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. So when we feel the anxieties of life pressing in, we're called to run with them to God and to pray. That's what Jesus told us to do in verse 36 of today's passage says in verse 36, we should always be on watch and pray. We should be on watch because he is coming back. He will one day return. We are to always be on watch. We are to always be ready for his return. But while we wait, while we face the challenges of life, we face the challenges that come with the sin that still lives in us, while we live with the temptation to be careless or anxious, Jesus says we are to pray. 
knowing that it is only God through the, the power of the Holy Spirit living in us who can ultimately transform us and cause us to live the life we are called to live. That calls us to pray so we may be formed, we may be ready for His return. Father, we come and confess that there are times when we live our lives in a way that shows that we are more concerned about our own desires, our own wants than we are about being ready for your return. Best that the, the things of this world and the anxieties of this world can at times drive to not live ready for your return. I pray for each of us go from here that we would live lives that are ready, live lives that are confident that you are coming back live lives that we would be happy to be found living return Father when we when we fall short, when we fail when we give in to selfish desires would you Cause us to run to you in repentance. Cause us to run to you that we may find forgiveness, we may find transformation, we may find the power to put sin in our lives to death, find power to live more like Jesus. go from here, would you help us to live ready for the return of Jesus and to live for your glory. Right on you. Find the service. We will meet back in here at 1045 for a, there will be a Sunday school discussion of the sermon here at 1045. A parenting smuggling will take place in the library at 1045. Children's Sunday School will be downstairs at 1030. We invite you to be a part of any of those. You're able to. But as you go from here, would you go ready for the return of Jesus, living a life that seeks to honor and glorify him. You are dismissed.
Turkey.